So I heard just before I sat down for the meditation that last Monday night, the speaker talked about anger. Is that right? Um, And I had just some kind of intuition to ask what the topic was because uh, this evening I was also going to speak about anger. And it occurs to me it's probably okay because uh, it's a big topic, don't you think? (laughs) And um, actually not one that gets a lot of airtime. So for the past year and a half, just about, um, I've actually been working with two groups. Um, One is a, a women's circle that was mentioned and another is a group of people I've been meeting with uh, by phone, of all things. Um, and we've been studying together the 16 bodhisattva precepts. Um, and we're just coming to the end, at least the women's group is coming to the end of our study. And we are on what's called grave precept number nine which is uh, the, the precept which states in at least one translation, uh, n- do not get angry or not being angry. So that's the reason for selecting this topic for the evening. Um, I'd like to start by giving a brief overview of uh, the precepts themselves. And as I was driving down here, I thought, well, can I summarize in 40 minutes, 20 minutes, maybe what we've been studying for the last eight or nine months? We'll see. (laughs) Um, So precepts are uh, guidelines, um, in some cases rules, for some people vows, that Uh, give us an outline for how to live a sane and skillful and compassionate life in the midst of community. When the Buddha, when the community first uh, grew up around the Buddha and his teaching, he didn't start out with a list of rules. Um, Mostly, what I've heard happened is that in response to specific circumstances that arose or situations that arose, the Buddha would give some instruction. And out of that, over some number of years, uh, a list of guidelines uh, were developed. And that list of guidelines later um, became codified into what's now called the Vinaya or Uh, precepts. And there are different lists of precepts in different traditions. Um, In this case, the um, Bodhisattva precepts are um, begin with uh, what are called the three refuges. And the refuges many of you probably are familiar with if you have, uh, you maybe have chanted them or at least heard of them at some point. Um, refuges are common. Refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, or triple treasure, <clears throat> is common to all schools of Buddhism. 
And um, these three refuges are actually the first of the 16 precepts. So taking refuge in Buddha, uh, simply translated as the teacher, or I like to think of it as our, as the possibility of awakening. And the Dharma, or teaching, um, of the truth of what's happening right now. So the possibility of awakening into the truth of what's happening in your moment-to-moment experience, Buddha and Dharma. And Sangha is traditionally translated as community um, or the group of people who come together to practice. Um, But community, uh, the the term Sangha can also be meant to understand, to to, uh, mean connection, uh, interdependence, So one way to think of the three treasures is that it is the possibility of awakening into or up to uh, what's happening right now, which is the falling away of our illusion, the illusion of our felt sense of separation, or waking up to our inherent connectedness. So this is the ground, sort of the foundation on which uh, the rest of the precepts are built, is taking refuge. And the word refuge comes from refuge, which means to fly back to. So to return again and again to the ground of who we really are and what it is we're waking up to, which is not any different from who we really are. So on this ground, the three refuges, uh, next come the three pure precepts. And the three pure precepts, simply put, are uh, don't do bad things, do good things, and dedicate yourself or devote yourself wholeheartedly to working for the benefit of all beings. And these three, as I've studied them with these two groups of people over the last year or more, I came to see these three as a picture or sort of laying out the terrain of the path itself. So the first precept, uh, the first pure precept, don't do bad things. This is a precept of restriction or confinement or, you know, do not. It's um, about prohibition. It's about not just doing whatever you want. (laughs) Uh, uh, Practicing some restraint of our normal, habitual habits, urges, etc. And that this is done for the purposes of training. And specifically for the purposes of training in finding out who we are discovering ourselves. So it's not meant so much to um, be punitive as it is meant to provide structures within which we can bump. We can um, find our rough edges and begin to smooth them. So there's an image in Zen uh, of what's called a snake in a bamboo pole. 
So you know a snake moves like this for the most part in a kind of S shape. And if you put a snake in a bamboo pole, you straighten it out, <coughs> presuming the bamboo is straight. Now, this is not to suggest that it's better to be straight than curvy. Fortunately, it's good for us that that's not the case. However, if you're a curvy kind of person and you put yourself in a straight pole, pretty soon you're going to discover how you move. Without that restriction, without that kind of containment, you just wiggle. <laughs> and maybe you have a good time, but you don't know that you're wiggling, right? That's just the way it is. So a snake in a bamboo pole is not meant, again, as punishment, as it is so much to find, to allow us to step into structures that, allow, that introduce us to who we are. When I, when I lived in the Zen monastery, we used to talk about monastic practice. And uh, Zen monastic practice is very much community practice. It's not uh, everybody doing their own thing. It's actually one large body of lots of people doing exactly the same thing throughout the day. At least that's what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> Um, but often we, we would talk about the practice of monastic training in community as being, each of us being like a rock in a big tumbler. And we come to the tumbler, we come to the monastery with all of our rough edges. And we join together with all the other rocks and we tumble around for a while. And little by little, sometimes joyfully and sometimes painfully, uh, all those rough edges would start to smooth. And if you've seen a rock that comes out of the ocean or out of a tumbler, it's beautiful and shiny and smooth. So this is uh, the orientation of the first pure precept. Uh, don't do bad things. Give yourself permission to take on some uh, discipline. Not because discipline is good and builds character, but because uh, it may help you find out what your habits are, find out things about yourself that you wouldn't otherwise know. So this is there's sort of a tightness in this first pure precept. The second pure precept is pretty much the flip side of the coin. Do good things. This is the encouragement to wholeheartedly jump in and appreciate life to thoroughly enjoy the abundant beauty and delight that is pouring forth moment after moment. Um, to my, to my uh, surprise in some way, I found that a number of the people who uh, I worked with had more trouble with the second pure precept than, when, than with the first. And you may recognize yourself in this category of person for whom working hard and restriction and kind of difficulty, that's kind of the norm. But appreciating how wonderful everything is, not so easy. Particularly in the face of, well, I don't know about you, but I read the newspaper this morning. And I read the newspaper, and if I look at this precept of that's encouraging me to appreciate how wonderful everything is in the world, I have a little trouble, right? I, I, I similarly rub some of my edges, 
and I don't quite know how to make sense of that. So it was interesting for me and with the women who I was working with to find that, in fact, this uh, enthusiastic, appreciative uh, side of this precept was actually kind of troubling for many people. But in terms of the structure or pattern or the terrain of the path, we have the first precept, which is kind of tight and restrictive, and the second, which is full and open and exuberant. And then we have the third. So the third precept is to dive in and engage and devote oneself to working is maybe not the best word. Dedicating oneself to the benefit of others. Dedicating oneself to uh, helping all beings awaken. So this precept is really about learning how to be skillful. How to meet uh, each situation, each moment, each other being as it arises, moment by moment. And you may have noticed that uh, despite all the self-help books out there, um, there's not really uh, rules for how to do this. Um, Basically, we have to show up. Um, That's the instruction. And um, by training ourselves, in particular training in the first two precepts, we begin to develop the flexibility and capacity to respond appropriately. This is, the, this is from a Zen story, the, the term an appropriate response, uh, which I used to name my company and business, where a student comes to a teacher and says, what's the teaching of an entire lifetime? And the student says, I'm sorry, the teacher says, an appropriate response. And appropriate, it turns out, is the translation, uh, the English word appropriate is a translation of three Chinese characters, which are meet, each, teach. So the uh, instruction here, what it means to respond appropriately, is to meet wholeheartedly, uh, skillfully meet each, each person, each, each situation, each breath, each feeling or thought that arises to meet each thing. And when we meet in this way, uh, teaching or illumination or awakening happens. So uh, we start with the first pure precept, which has this restriction, and the second, which is sort of wide open and enthusiastic, and the third, which is Learning when to do what. Learning when it's time for restriction, when it's time for uh, enthusiastic engagement. And uh, this, uh, this image was, sort of, uh, what I say, planted, impressed on me um, years ago when I attended a ceremony um, called Shosan, uh, a Zen ceremony in which uh, students who are in, involved in an intensive period of training get to ask the teacher or whoever's in charge. Everybody gets to ask a question. And everybody, it's, it's in a very formal way. 
lots of bowing and incense and all that. And everybody gets to ask a question in front of everybody else and gets a response. So you get your question answered, but you also learn a lot from uh, the rest of the community. So one of the students asked, uh, it was at the end of this intensive period of three months, and the student said, you know, my heart has really opened, sort of blossomed open in this period of time, and now I'm going back home, going back to the world. Probably some of you who've done intensive retreat can uh, appreciate this experience. So this student said, I'm going back to the world, and I want to keep my heart open. You know, what's your advice? And the teacher uh, held up his hand with a fist and said, is this a heart? And the student said, no. And he said, is this a heart? Opening his hand wide, no. He said, and the teacher said, right, this is a heart. Open, close, open, close. If our heart gets shut open or gets shut closed, no more life. So this, for me, has been the image of what it means to respond appropriately, to be able to move with skill and flexibility as appropriate from open to closed and back again in order to meet each, in order to um, engage fully with our uh, complete care and attention to each aspect of uh, life that presents itself. So this close, open, close, open, this um, for me became kind of a metaphor for the terrain, for the shape of the path, as it were. So now we've got six, right? First three precepts, the three refuges, and then we have the three pure precepts, and then we have the ten grave precepts, that's what they're called. So. Um, Grave, the reason they're called grave is, I, I think, because uh, they're meant to be taken seriously, <laughs> as the name suggests. Um, and the ten grave precepts are basically ten of the major ways we create karma, and particularly the way that we create uh, not such good karma, negative karma. And the word karma means action. So really, when we're talking about karma, we're looking at it uh, in terms of how to work with karma. I think of it as how do we work with it on both the front end and the uh, rear end, if you will. So on the front end of karma, we're looking at what's our intention as we engage in action. And we look, when we look on the other side, it's what are the consequences of our action? And when we begin to work with or study karma in our lives, we want to start paying attention to both of these sides. We want to start noticing, what's my intention as I go to take action? And what are the consequences of my action when I take it? Now, traditionally, it's described that there's three basic kinds of karma. <laughs> I was going to say good, bad, and neutral, but that's not right. Um, there are three basic kinds of karma. There are kar there's karma of body, of action. There's karma of speech, talking. And karma of mind. And um, each of these kind of karma, kinds of karma, have um, 
increasingly significant repercussions in sort of the reverse order of, as I said them. But no, no, in the same order that I said them. So the karma that we create with our bodies or our actions have, has the most serious consequences, whereas karma that we create through speaking has slightly less severe consequences. And the karma that we create through thinking, through our minds, though it's the foundation for the other two, it actually creates the least amount of ripple. So if you imagine uh, thinking to yourself, Joe is really a jerk. There's some karma that gets created. There's certain, uh, you feel it in your body, how you relate to Joe is going to be impacted. There's some waves there. But not a huge amount. Significant, but not huge. Now, if you go up to Joe and say, Joe, you are really a jerk. More karma, right? More significant than if you just think it. And if you walk up to Joe and say, is there any Joe in the room? <laughs> if you walk up to Joe and say, Joe, you are really a jerk and bop him in the nose. Now there's more karma, right? So you can see that the sort of intensity of consequence uh, increases as we move from body to speech to mind. Or in reverse, it gets more subtle as we go from body speech to mind. So as we studied the 10 grave precepts, um, we started with the precepts of body, which were not killing, not stealing, not intoxicating, and not misusing sexuality. All of those that have to do with taking action. And then we studied the uh, precepts around speech. And those were not lying, not slandering or speaking negatively of other people, and um, not praising self at the expense of others. It's an interesting one for people. And um, finally, we are now working with uh, the last precepts, which are the precepts of mind or mental states. And those are, uh, in essence, a precept of um, greed or not being stingy, the mind of greed, and the mind of anger or hatred, which is number nine, the one we're working on now. And the tenth precept, the final of the ten great precepts, is actually considered to include all three, body, speech, and mind. And it, um, interestingly, sort of brings the whole system uh, back to the top. So the tenth grave precept is um, not disparaging the triple treasure. So remember at the beginning we started with the triple treasure? So the last precept is don't put it down. Um, and I've been uh, studying and reflecting on this as this is a precept fundamentally about faith. It's about not putting down what, uh, what it is we're able to rely on, what it is we take refuge in. So that's all ten. But what I'd like to do is take a little bit of time to focus on uh, number nine. And um, I, I mentioned a little bit earlier that there's often three different ways that one can hold or tend to or work with these precepts. And the first is as a rule or an injunction, a do not. This is um, working with the precept at the what I call the prescriptive or literal, le literal level. So if the precept says don't kill, don't kill. The 
precept says don't lie, don't lie. It's a rule. Uh, the second way of working with it, the second level or aspect of working with the precept is sometimes called the compassionate level of the precepts. And this is where you work with them more as a question or a koan, to use the Zen term. Um, so is it possible to live on this planet as a human being and not to kill? What could that possibly mean? More like that. So at the second level, we take the precept on as a question to guide us in waking up to our life, to finding out who we are and how things work. This is the um, compassionate level of the precept. And the third level is um, sometimes described as the, the Buddha mind level. It's, the, it's a description of how the world looks through the eyes of a Buddha. So if you were a Buddha, um, you would see uh, no killing and no stealing and no slandering and so on. And this level is confusing for people. You may, you may feel yourself thinking, what could, they, what could that possibly mean? Um, it's meant more um, as inspiration, I think, or as a kind of pointing to something rather than... Um, trying to convince yourself that there's really no killing going on. Um, so don't, don't worry about that one too much. Um, but what I'd like to do is, is talk about um, anger a bit from the perspective of these three levels to give you a, a taste here. Um, and I, do, I just want to acknowledge that um, <laughs> anger is... Uh, for most of the audiences I've spoken to and people who I've worked with around it, it's a, uh, how do I say, it's literally a hot topic, right? Um, there's a lot of charge here. There's a lot of energy and heat in anger um, and even in talking about it. And um, it's interesting that the um, uh, image that the Buddha used originally to talk about anger was hot coals. So... Uh, fire and heat is uh, implicit in how it is. And certainly, uh, if anyone of you has ever gotten mad before, maybe none of you have ever gotten mad, but when I get mad, um, I have that experience. My face gets red, um, I get short of breath, my eyes get kind of bulgy, and I grimace, and my hands get sweaty. My, um, <laughs> and I take myself very seriously. My, my husband uh, has a joke with me that when I get really mad and I'm kind of stomping around the house, he calls me his little steam shovel because he says he can sort of see the steam coming out of my ears. And uh, inevitably, pretty much like 99.9% .9 of the time when he says that, it breaks the trance. Because, you know, when we're angry, we are, things are really serious and we can't see how ridiculous we look. So for me, this little steam shovel image always, almost always makes me laugh at myself for whatever it is that I'm so riled up about. Um, but I think often, in, particularly in American audiences, there's so much taboo about anger that nobody wants to hear somebody else telling them, don't get angry. Well, wait a minute. Um, my anger is useful in some way. 
So when I uh, was living at Green Gulch Farm years ago, we had uh, several weeks with um, Bob Thurman, who some of you may know as a Buddhist scholar and quite a um, kind of wild and dynamic speaker. And he was giving talks on a text called the Bodhisattva Charya, which is a guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life by an Indian sage named Shantideva. And everyone in the whole community was enthusiastically kind of riding his coattails and really enjoying him until we got to chapter four. And chapter four is a chapter on patience. And it opens with this line, which I'll read to you verbatim. Shantideva says, whatever wholesome deeds, such as venerating the Buddhas and generosity, have been amassed over a thousand aeons, they will all be destroyed in one moment of anger. Imagine, thousands of aeons of good karma generated. One moment of anger, flattened, all gone. So people just went nuts. <laughs> well, we, what do you mean? Uh, Shanti Deva can't possibly be right. Um, he knows nothing about modern American, you know, on and on and on. People really got upset about this. And I think that um, it's still true. People get really riled up about anger. So um, fortunately, from the perspective of studying the precepts, we have a bunch of different ways to look at it. And um, the first way, the prescriptive way, the do not way says, don't get angry. And um, this is an admonition that is uh, pointing us toward uh, a calm, peaceful life in which our sort of the fire of a whole array of passions have been blown out. And, you know, the, the, um, the word nirvana actually means to blow out. So in, in early uh, Buddhist teaching and in many of the traditional forms of practicing, um, aiming at nirvana, aiming at blowing out, ridding oneself of the passions is considered a very high state. And um, indeed, uh, if I could imagine such a place where that would be possible, um, it, it seems to me it would be quite a remarkable thing. The difficulty, of course, is that for many of us, um, uh, we, what could be taken as blowing out or nirvana actually is something more like repression, right? It's just, uh, instead of acting out our anger, we're squashing it. And I think that that's where a lot of the backlash about this comes, is that many, many people feel, you know, I've been sitting on my anger or swallowing my anger, and it's been giving me ulcers or depression or jangled nerves or whatever it is for so long. Don't tell me not to. But this is um, one level or one way of understanding uh, working with this precept. It's not the only one. Um, at the compassionate level, level number two, um, the focus shifts from do not or blowing out to the thrust of the intention there is to benefit, of all, to benefit all beings. So whatever we do, 
as long as the orientation is to benefit people, then it's okay. So in this case, we enter the question, well, can anger ever be beneficial? Well, the short answer, I think, is yes. And um, fortunately, I have it on good... um, uh, I I have some good backup for this, which is that I read recently... um, Daniel Goleman's new book, Destructive Emotions, which is this wonderful dialogue between His Holiness the Dalai Lama and a number of other uh, Buddhist scholars and monks and uh, Western philosophers and scientists, that the Dalai Lama says that there is such a thing as positive anger. And that positive anger is when the anger is, uh, arises in order to benefit someone. And I think, at least for me, as I reflected on this, I could see that uh, the kind of anger that arises when we shout at a young child who is about to walk out in traffic, or we feel some kind of righteous indignation in the face of cruelty or harm that's being done to another person or persons. This is a kind of anger that may arise which is in, uh, for the service of, um, in order to benefit. In, in Tibetan Buddhism, you know, there are these what are called wrathful deities. And um, these deities are kind of uh, depictions of, I suppose, what I look like, but maybe not quite as ridiculous when I get really angry. And they are this fiery energy that is meant specifically to be turned toward protecting what's most precious. So it's this kind of energy that we can also tap into ourselves. Um, We have to be careful because, um, as I said earlier, very often what happens with anger because there's so much energy in it is that it, it takes an object. And so instead of staying with the anger itself, we uh, follow it and we latch on to whatever it's pointing at. And that becomes the, the object of our attention rather than the energy itself. Um, or, as I said, we uh, repress it. We, we hold it back. And it's actually quite difficult, I think, because anger is so intense, to stay with the pure, raw energy itself. But that is the focus and orientation of the third level of... Um, what I described as the, the level of the Buddha mind or a descriptive, pre, descriptive level of the precepts. So what anger looks like to the eyes of a Buddha is just pure, raw life energy uh, sort of bubbling up and out of us. Um, and it's that energy which arises and flows. I think of sort of like a volcano. It just erupts, but it doesn't take an object and it doesn't get squashed back down. Um, once when I was sitting a, a long retreat, I had this energy that came in my body that I felt from the base of my spine sort of moving up through my body. And without knowing it, I think I assumed it was anger because it felt like anger. It felt like this hot, intense energy. And as I was sitting quietly on my cushion, feeling this energy, I was imagining that this energy would come up and I lifted up a 
chair in my mind and was throwing it across the room. And I started to think, wow, I sure am angry. I wonder what this is about. And very soon was caught in a story about the anger. This is really common for us. Um, We have trouble staying with the energy itself. And instead, we look for who's to blame. You know, who am I going to throw the chair at? (laughs) Or um, we get lost in a story about the anger rather than staying with the anger. So I had this, it was a very vivid experience for me at the time of catching myself and and, um, sort of backpedaling from the story and just getting really curious about what is this? And at a certain point I realized, this isn't anger. This is just life, you know, coming through me. So I think that in some ways what we think of as anger, if we can find our balance, can actually be a doorway to something very uh, vital. Um, in his commentary to the uh, precepts, each of the ten great precepts, the Zen master uh, Dogen writes a little poem. And um, his poem in response to grave precept number nine uh, is this. It's quite beautiful. He says, Neither withdrawn nor set forth, neither real nor unreal. Here are oceans of luminous clouds, oceans of magnificent clouds. So Dogen is giving us instruction, I think, here about how to work with anger and also this beautiful image of what's possible if we're able to find our balance in the middle of it. So he says, neither withdrawn nor set forth, neither repressed or acted out, neither real nor unreal. This is a great instruction, I think. Anger is something that we don't want to take it too seriously, but we also don't want to ignore it. We don't want to make it too real, but we also don't want to pretend that it's nothing. So neither withdrawn nor set forth, neither real nor unreal. When we find our balance with anger in this way, what we're left with is uh, oceans of luminous clouds, oceans of magnificent clouds. Some of you may know that there's often uh, the clear mind of awakening is often likened to a vast sky. And sometimes it's described that there are clouds that obscure the sky. Right? Sort of clouds of, say, afflictive emotions like anger. But in this image, uh, we get a little twist where the clouds themselves, which we might think of as afflictive emotion, are actually the source of extraordinary beauty and illumination. So this is what's possible, I think, or this is what he's pointing to that's possible when we learn to be uh, skillful with our anger is that while anger, yes, can be quite dangerous, it also can be quite magnificent. It can, if we allow it to, and we learn to uh, neither act it out nor squash it, um, it can illuminate. It can uh, bring light and brightness and sharpness and clarity to our life. And when 
we uh, become skillful with this kind of energy, we have the possibility of responding appropriately, moment to moment. So, looks like I have one minute, and I want to close with um, a story about that that I read in uh, this month's Turning Wheel, the Buddhist Peace Fellowship magazine. And uh, it's a story that Pema Chodron tells about uh, Jarvis Masters, who's a man who is on death row, who converted to Buddhism. And has he took a vow himself to do whatever he could to prevent harm from being done. And um, apparently one day in the prison yard, uh, there was a man who was... Uh, preparing to kill a bird. So there was a bird that was kind of squawking around in the water and mud in the yard. And this guy took a rock and was uh, getting ready to fling it at the bird. And uh, Jarvis, somewhat unintentionally apparently, just reached out and held this man's arm. Um, And naturally, he then became the object of this man's wrath or anger. So first it was going to be the bird, but now it was Jarvis. And the guy started yelling, and what are you doing, and who do you think you are? And pretty soon there was a whole big group of uh, prisoners in the yard standing around him. He said, what do you think you're doing? Why did you do that? Why did you grab my arm? And uh, Jarvis looked at him and said, "Uh, I grabbed your arm because that bird has my wings. That bird, the bird this guy was going to kill, He said, that bird has my wings. (coughs) And everybody stopped. This was uh, Jarvis Masters Masters as the Zen master, right? It just completely stopped everybody in their tracks. And maybe like you, perhaps, or like me, you didn't quite understand what he's saying. But something was uh, evoked. And so this was, for me, a beautiful example of um, how it's possible to meet the intensity um, of anger and transform it into something uh, quite beautiful.